The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. And I would ask at this time, you open up your Bibles. Thank God we live in a time and a place where we have these. They are legal. They are even inexpensive. And you can hold a copy of the very word of God in your own hand. This is a pronouncement from heaven, a love letter from the savior of the universe to us. And we can open it together and study it this morning. So we are immensely blessed. So please open your own copy of the scripture to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 25. As you're turning there, let me give you some foreshadowing about what we're going to hear in the text today. So far in our study of Acts, we have seen incredible and explosive growth in the church. It has moved from just 120 people and that upper room to less than probably a year later, being what most scholars suggest would be about 30 to 50,000 people. Now, I realize that this kind of growth is very difficult to quantify. It's hard for us to get like a picture of what that looks like in our minds. So let me put that into perspective for you. In other words, if the church continued to grow at this rate, even using their smaller estimates, that means that the population of the entire world would have been reached with the gospel and been saved within less than three years from that point. That is an incredible amount of growth that has been unparalleled in the rest of human history. God was doing an amazing work, drawing many people to himself. And therefore, to this point, the book has mostly taken a bird's eye view of the transformation that is taking place. It's mainly speaking about the multitudes. Most of the people that came to know Jesus during these early days of the church remain anonymous to us. We don't know almost anything about them. We haven't been privileged to know the specifics of their salvation. Who was it that told them? What exactly did they hear that that caught their ear? What was it in their own life that was falling apart that they realized they needed a savior? What specific sins were they repenting of? We literally just don't know what barriers the gospel overcame to bring these people into the kingdom because so far, the book of Acts has been taking a very corporate view of the church, which is not a bad thing. But now there is a shift into a very personal direction by the author of the book. Over the next several weeks, we're actually going to encounter three conversations that are up close and personal. We begin with this conversation we will look at today with an Ethiopian eunuch. And then we will move to a Turkish Jew who was a professional Pharisee. And then we're going to see an Italian soldier and how all three of these people were transformed by the gospel and converted in both heart and mind. So join me now as we open the Holy Word of God, this powerful message from his own mouth, starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, and through the end of the chapter. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. 
and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. God, I thank you that although we can see the big picture, that your kingdom is growing immensely throughout the world, that it is spreading even now like tendrils around this planet, reaching into cities and towns and villages and even into jungles and deserts where wherever people are, Lord, your gospel is going. And we thank you for those who carry that message. And I thank you, Lord, that each and every time your kingdom grows, it is because you send a messenger to go to an individual to proclaim the good news. I thank you, Lord, that the steps of the kingdom's growth are usually very small in terms of our vision. Lord, I thank you that each time anyone comes back to the fold, all of heaven rejoices. So I pray that today we would look at the story and we would recognize that we are both like Philip, called to be missionaries to those around us, that we are not to think little of those individual conversations that come into our path. And I also pray that we would be like the eunuch, recognizing that we are truly without any hope unless we have Christ. Lord, I pray that we would see that he is true treasure. So Lord, I pray that today there would be much joy in the heart of each one of us as we come to your word and as we bow ourselves before it and as we humbly seek that you would teach us. Lord, we are not here just gathered around a physical copy of a book. We are here to hear you speak. So Lord, I pray that today you would speak and that we would hear you by the spirit and by your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you grew up in church, doesn't matter which church, any church that is a evangelical or even broader Protestant church, it is likely that you grew up learning a specific handful of certain verses that you were required to learn or memorize. Uh, if you were anything like me, there was a specific set of verses that were hammered into your brain as you grew up in that church. Uh, one of the passages that Christians have taught their children and for good reason, that is very powerful and has been very effective in the growth of the church, is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. 
this passage that we call the Great Commission. It is the last words of Jesus before he ascends. The famous last words, what does he have to say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's taking place in Acts chapter 8 is nothing more than the obedient outworking of this commissioning by Jesus. This is just a simple picture of the proper way that the kingdom of God is supposed to be built. So listen carefully to the word, because this is not some one-off event. Dr. Luke is not just sharing this with us in, under the inspiration of the Spirit so that we might be clapping for Philip and amazed at what took place in this moment. Rather, the, he is writing this so that we might know what we are called to do and how it is that we are called to carry this great gift of good news to the lost. The structure of today's sermon is simply going to be the Great Commission. Here's our points, six of them. First, Jesus has all authority. Second, therefore, go. Third, make disciples of all nations. Fourth, baptizing them. Fifth, teaching them. And sixth, behold, he is with us. Point number one, Jesus has all authority. Before we even arrive at the text, we need to remember what's been happening in the life of this man, Philip. Remember, we were introduced to him when there was a difficult situation taking place where the widows who were Hellenistic, Greek-speaking widows in the church, were not being apportioned food in the distribution. Therefore, they were going to starve to death unless somebody did something. And the church, the, the apostles took it upon themselves to tell the people, you find the right servants, the right people who are filled with the Spirit and who are desirous to serve, you bring them to us and we will establish them as leaders whose job it is to ensure that the needs of the body are met. Because the apostles said, for we must take care to use our time in prayer and dedication to the word. So this man, Philip, is one of the seven who is brought forward. He was recognized both as a deeply spiritual man, but also as a man who desired to use every ounce of his gifting to give it to the church, to serve. We also see that his mind is not just focused inwardly because as soon as the church was dispersed and as soon as that persecution began to crank up, he leaves and he goes north to the land of Samaria, to the land of the Samaritans. And as he is there, He doesn't keep silent. I think many of us, if we were threatened, if our lives were physically threatened, we might be a little more quiet about the fact that Jesus is our king. We might not be so quick to proclaim publicly on street corners that Jesus is God. But he goes to Samaria and he just keeps doing what he did in Jerusalem. And what happens as we have been learning over the last few weeks, many people came to know the Lord. And so the the apostles, Peter and John, go north. They recognize this is a work of the Lord. The Holy Spirit has fallen on these people. This is genuine. And they go back to Jerusalem and say, praise God, even the Samaritans, these half-breed, half-Jew, half-Assyrian descendants, these guys are also receiving the word of God. And remember the promise that Jesus had made in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that these, you will be my witnesses unto the world. But it's going to start in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. And then it's going to extend to the outer parts of the world. Well, today we transition out of Samaria 
and we go into the ends of the earth. We begin that process. In fact, we're going to encounter this guy from Ethiopia. It's important to know this is not the physical country of Ethiopia that we have on our map today. This is actually a little bit of South Sudan and even a little bit farther down than that. And that's what the people of that day called the bottom of the world. There were many people who had tried to figure out where's the source of the Nile and they had gone down there, but the land is treacherous and it is almost impossible to get through. So they called this the bottom of the world because they did not believe anyone lived below this point. So to the the Jewish mindset, this guy is the farthest person that we could ever reach to the south. As far down as we can go is right here. And so today we are going to see that the ends of the earth going south are going to begin hearing the gospel. So what I want you to know is that as Philip has gone and the church is scattered abroad, the gospel has gone with him. And we don't know a lot more about Philip, but we do know that he listens to God's voice and that he responds as though God is in charge. If God says, your job now is to feed the widows, great, I'm going to feed the widows. If God says, it's your job to proclaim the good news on a street corner, great. I'm going to proclaim the good news on a street corner. And now we're going to see God telling him to get up and go. And his response shows us that he has a recognition. God is in charge of my life. We say that this this verse, Jesus proclaims, all authority has been given to me. Do we really believe it? Church, Jesus has all authority. Stephen's execution was not an accident. Jesus had authority over that event. God didn't just fall asleep on the job. Jesus had all authority and he allowed that to take place for the good of the church, even if they couldn't see why it was happening at the time. Jesus had authority over every person that was throwing stones at Stephen. God had authority over every single one of them, including the guy holding the coats. Pause for a moment and think about the timing of this situation. Did God know that Saul of Tarsus would eventually be saved? Yes, Did God know that this man would be a light unto the Gentiles? Yes. Did God know that this man would eventually be the greatest missionary, the greatest church planter, and possibly the greatest Christian who would ever live? Yes. Yet when Stephen preached the longest sermon in the book of Acts, his heart was still hard. He did not hear a word of it. He stood there idly by cheering them on as they gave him his coats, their coats, so they wouldn't be covered in blood. Was Jesus in authority in that moment? Yes, he had all authority. But Jesus' timing is very peculiar and interesting about what is going on in the life of Saul. The question, I think, is for us, do you really believe that Jesus has all authority over all circumstances and all situations? Do you believe that he is sovereign? When one of your coworkers starts to talk about religious things, but you know they're not saved and you're fearful to share the good news with them, Why are you fearful? It's because there's a doubt in your heart that God is really in charge of this situation. I think there's doubt in our heart that God's going to work it out. If I speak to this person, this good news is going to actually be something that glorifies God and is good. There's only two possibilities here and you can't fail either way. Either they will hear the good news and they will repent, whether immediately or in a delayed way, or they're going to reject it. But God's word never returns void. It never falls short. It never fails. It always accomplishes God's purposes. So you literally can't fail. You can't lose in sharing the gospel. So why are we standing there trembling thinking, God, do you have my back right now? Are you with me? Are you for me? 
I'm not sure if I should even share this with them because what if they think I'm an idiot? What if they think that this whole thing is a little bit odd or crazy? We're terrified to even invite people to church because what if they think I've lost my mind? But here's my question. And it really boils down, I think, to to this. Do you believe that Jesus has all authority, both over the globe at large and over your life in particular? Do you trust him and believe that if you are called to go, that you should go? Do you actually believe that he has the authority to change the direction of your life? Do you really truly think that God is going to do something when you open your mouth and share the good news? Or do you doubt it and have a feeling that you're probably just going to get rejected? There was once a young preacher who approached an aging Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon had been in ministry for a long time at this point. And this young guy came to him and said, a good teacher, I've been preaching for many, many years, but I've seen no converts. And Spurgeon responded by asking a question and said, Sir, do you expect, that people, uh, do you expect people to be converted each time you preach? And the guy said, No, sir. And I think that he was probably relying on a, a theological framework here. No, I know that people will reject. I, I know in my mind that people will reject the good news. But Spurgeon's answer shocked the man. He said, that's the reason you don't succeed because you don't expect to do so. This is not mind over matter that Spurgeon is talking about. This is faith that God can do what God is going to do in the hearts of people. There should be an expectation that God is going to work through the gospel. So then Spurgeon turned to one of his friends and asked them, have we not learned to expect more of God? Charles Spurgeon personally preached to more than 10 million people in his life before the advent of television or the internet. Think about that. In person, people actually physically walking to the building space where he was. 10 million people came to hear this man over the course of almost 40 years. By the time of his death, there were already over 56 million copies of his sermons in print in more than 40 languages. His ministry resulted in the salvation of thousands of people, and he personally baptized 14,654 people that we know about. That equals out to about one person for every day of his professional ministry. But Spurgeon never took the credit for the abundance of fruit that he saw in ministry. Why? Because he always pointed to the Lord and said, it is God who does the work. Jesus has all authority to do what he wants to do with the good news. Therefore, he had an expectation that I can't mess this up as long as I faithfully preach the good news. As long as I proclaim, I cannot fail. And he expected great things from God. In fact, he believed it so much that he had the famous words of William Carey inscribed above his pulpit that said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. William Carey, Calvinist, recognized that the Lord had a particular people in India. And he left his home and went to India and began proclaiming the good news and started something very significant, not just there locally in India, where there still is ministry that started with his missionary efforts, but also globally, people realize, wait a minute, we shouldn't be hoarding this stuff here in what we call Christendom. We are called to take this good news and go everywhere with it. So Charles Spurgeon had those words, embrazened in a place where he literally could not step into his pulpit without reading them, that he was to expect great things from God. Some days when I come into the pulpit, I feel discouraged. I feel like, man, I, I just don't have anything to, to really 
give to the people. I just feel empty. I'm tired. I'm just weak. And maybe I've had a bad week and I'm, I'm, I recognize how terrible of a Christian I am. And I, and I get up here and I just don't even have faith that God's going to take this message and change people's lives. I feel like when we do evangelism, that's where we often are. God, are you even going to use this? And oftentimes I think we don't give the gospel to others because we have a supreme lack of faith that God's actually going to do anything with it. When we share the gospel, are we expecting anything from God? It's possible just to be mired in a defeatist attitude. And I don't want to talk about this just on an individual basis. I want to speak about this also in terms of the way I often hear Christians on Long Island speak about the future of this island. As though, by the time I die, all the Christians are also going to be gone. The church is just declining. We've missed our time. It's already passed us by. We need to believe that God can transform this land with the good news because Jesus has all authority. If Jesus wants to redeem every last person in this county or on this island or in this country, he could do it in a single day. He could do that. He does not for reasons known to himself, but we need to begin proclaiming it as though he has all authority, as though the guy that works as your boss is actually under the authority of Jesus. As the person you sit next to on the train, they're a stranger to you. You have no responsibility over them or authority over them, but Jesus does. You have the right and even the responsibility to share with that person because Jesus has all authority. Now, I know this is not super exegetical at this point. I've just been rambling to some extent about the glorious nature of our big God who loves so much that he pursues people, but we will not pursue and we will not join in his mission unless we first believe that God is pursuing people and that God has authority to do that and that he is going to use people like us to do that. Which brings us now to our second point, therefore go. Our going is predicated upon trusting that Jesus is king. And what we see happening here is that there is someone who trusts that Jesus is king. So in verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Philip, think about this, was in the middle of a revival of glorious proportions in Samaria. A whole new people group was coming to faith in Christ, and they were coming in droves. And he, by the way, according to what we see earlier in chapter 8, is their primary teacher. He is their spiritual leader to an extent. But God spoke to him through an angel and told him, you know what? Even though all this stuff is happening here, I want you to leave. And Philip doesn't argue. He doesn't try to reason with God about all the reasons why he might be more useful in Samaria than out in the middle of the desert. He simply trusted that God knew what he was doing, and he went. But don't underestimate that statement. God is not usually going to use us in places that are easy for us. He is going to send us to places that are uncomfortable to us. I've served the Lord in multiple places, uh, multiple cultures, multiple languages. And I can tell you that of all of them, Long Island is the farthest culture from my personal natural bent. I am not, as you probably have noticed, a Long Islander. And I don't think like a Long Islander. I don't act like a Long Islander. And there are certain things about Long Island and the difficulties and challenges of moving here as an outsider that are very challenging for me much more than living on a mountain with no electricity in a cinder block house in Brazil. I would rather in many ways be there in terms of my natural proclivities. 
God often calls us to places that are not comfortable to us. He calls this man to leave and go into the desert. Deserts are literally the worst. They are the worst places in the world. There's a reason most people avoid them and do not live there. When I was growing up, I was probably in second grade. I still remember vividly um, trying to figure out how to, what the distinction was between desert and dessert, because one has two S's and one has one, and trying to figure out how to spell them correctly. And my older brother helped me, and he told me something that I have never forgotten. He said, well, you can always remember that dessert is spelled with two S's because you probably want to eat it twice. And <laughs> desert is spelled with one because if you go there, you only get one shot. You're never coming back. You're just going to die. And uh, I remember that still to this day. This man was called not to a thriving metropolis. He was called to the desert. He was not like Jonah being sent to a massive capital city of an empire. He was being sent to go talk to one man. His entire mission, his entire effort of walking on this road was to talk to one man. And as he goes... He doesn't know exactly how long he's going to be there. He just gets up and he leaves. And he travels to this place to do whatever it is that God will reveal to him to do. There are many times that God had chosen to serve a multi- save a multitude through Philip's preaching, but this sermon was for one man. And don't scoff at that. That is not a small thing. I want to ask by show of hands, how many people in this room were saved during a large gathering of Christians where you heard preaching or teaching at a conference or a retreat or a sermon, and you were saved while you were in that kind of gathering as the Lord drew your heart to him? How many of you would say that's the case? A good number. On the other hand, how many would say that you were saved because of a direct conversation with an individual who sought you out with the gospel? I think that's even the majority there, probably two-thirds majority. God uses both. God uses both. And oftentimes, God will use an individual conversation over a mass salvation of thousands of people. He will actually use an individual who is probably not fully theologically aligned with everything accurately in the Bible. I know that I'm not. I don't know where I'm wrong. When I get to heaven, I will know. If I knew where I was wrong, I would, I would correct it. But nobody's perfectly aligned, got all their ducks in a row theologically. The person probably doesn't have the whole Bible memorized, I would assume. I don't. Most Christians don't. Throughout church history, there's only one man that anybody even thinks had the whole Bible memorized, and that was Athanasius. I'm so enamored by that that I named my son after this guy. The person who shared with you is probably scared. They were probably nervous a little bit because they weren't sure how you would respond and they didn't want to harm your relationship. The person who came and shared with you was sent to an uncomfortable situation, most likely because if you're anything like most people, there was an antagonism against the gospel. And as somebody started to tell you, you did not want what they had to sell. You did not want to pick up what they were putting down. You wanted to push away with all of your might until God broke your walls down. But they still came and they still shared the gospel with you. And so I want to share with you, this is important, that this is the love of God. The love of God is displayed in the fact that he uses sheep to go corral more sheep into his kingdom. He pursues his people using his people. So here's the question. How do you know if you are being told to go? God is not going to part the heavens and speak. It's very unlikely that God is going to send an angel to you like he did here in this passage to Philip. So how do you know if you're called to go? Let me give you a few insights from the text. First of all, Philip was not being called here to go on a long-term mission trip. 
if you take careful note of what's going on here in the text, he was not commissioned by the church to go permanently. This was much different than what we see taking place in Acts chapter 13, where they actually send out Paul and Barnabas to plant churches. One way to pursue the question of ministry calling is to just start small. Just try going first to a short, non-committal mission trip. Opportunities that we have here in the church are numerous and abundant. We have partnerships where we support missionaries around the world. Uh, every year there's an opportunity to go to Jamaica in February. And there's opportunities for a very small team to go to Belarus, either March, April, or May. We have opportunities in the summer to go serve in the Dominican Republic. We have opportunities in, Lord willing, in the fall, even more often in the future, to go serve our missionaries, Jesse and Jerry V, over in Italy. And we have connections and opportunities that are not super far here in the United States where you can go and serve other churches or places like the Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center in Queens. You don't have to go that far or even get on a plane in order to start seeing where the Lord is leading you in terms of ministry. Are you called to go long-term? Secondly, if you're not evangelizing here, you're not going to be evangelizing on the mission field. By the grace of God, I've had the opportunity to serve in multiple places around the world uh, with different churches and organizations, some big and some small. And one thing that I quickly realized with missions is just how ordinary the work of a missionary really is. It's, It's not radical or bombastic in terms of what the world sees. It's very commonplace living, just being the light of the gospel in the darkness where there is no Christian church. It is proclaiming the good news to a lot of people who don't hear it. And the way that you do that is just by being a faithful Christian. Now, there are boundaries and borders and challenges culturally, uh, economically, linguistically, things that you have to work hard to overcome. But ultimately, when you get there, you're just trying to build a church. You are trying to, not a physical building, you are trying to hear, have people hear the gospel and be saved and grow a collection of people who are gathering together faithfully in unity and community to fellowship around the good news of the gospel, hearing the Bible preached and growing in spiritual maturity and multiplying the good news and the kingdom themselves. This is very commonplace. It's not different than what we are doing here in this place. If you're not evangelizing here, what makes you think that you would evangelize there? One of the things that is very interesting to me that doesn't exist a lot here on Long Island, but I've seen a great deal in the Church of America at large, is the common sending of young people on mission trips. I've gone on many of them as a a young person. I think some of them were very beneficial to me. I don't have anything against them. But it is interesting that many times we send students who are not saved, that we know are not saved, and we expect them to do the work of a minister, of an evangelist, of a gospel proclamation to people with a message they themselves don't even believe. Are we evangelizing here? Are you evangelizing your neighbors and coworkers? If not, why would we transcend cultural or language barriers to go over there if we're not willing to do it here? So start here, start small, do what the Lord has put in front of you. This man went where he went because God provided the opportunity. You probably don't have to go very far to see that God has given you an opportunity, setting it in your lap, a place for you to serve through the uh, manner of evangelism. You have a lot of influence. There are a lot of people that hear your voice throughout the day. Each week, there are people that you regularly come into contact with that are currently on their way to hell. 
Those are people in your instance that are like this Ethiopian eunuch, people that God has put into your path, so evangelize here and now. Third, if you are called to go long-term, then you must be commissioned by your local church. We're going to cover this a lot more later when we get to chapter 13 in the book of Acts, but it's easy to remember that the pattern of church ministry in the New Testament is this. Churches plant churches, and churches ordain pastors, and churches send missionaries. So it's not something where God is going to tell you and then you're going to go on your own apart from any sending organization. None of those things are ever done by anyone just deciding this on their own. Regardless, I think John Piper is absolutely right when he says that there are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to missions. There are zealous goers, there are zealous senders, and there are disobedient. You are either going to go or send And if you're doing neither of those things, then you are failing in the mission of the gospel that the Lord has put before you. So if you believe that Jesus has all authority, then like Philip, you will go. Whether that means going across the ocean or if that means going across the street, you will go. And in fact, in the the Great Commission, where it is translated for us, therefore go, in the original language, that wording is actually as you are going. It is just an expectation of Jesus that if you believe I have all authority, then you will be going. And here's what you're supposed to do while you're at it. That brings us now to point number three. Make disciples of all nations. Verse 27 says, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now let's talk for a moment about how God set up this incredible moment. This man, this eunuch, he was a high official of the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. This name, Candace, is not an actual name. It's a title that was given to her. She had a lot of power over a lot of people. And this man had gone through the process necessary to work closely with a female ruler. If you were a man and you wanted to be in the service of a queen, then you had to become a eunuch for the safety of your ruler. So he had been emasculated as a price to pay for his high position. Now, this surgery has obvious downsides. Uh, But it also has multiple underlying realities that might not be readily apparent to a modern reader. First, if you voluntarily became a eunuch, it came with opportunities for political advancement. If you were a eunuch, then you were the one who was going to be put in charge of specific things that were usually places of great power and esteem, and you were often paid very well. For example, this man, was his job was to guard all the treasure of the queen. But it also meant that any wealth that you accumulated in your lifetime would die with you because you have no line to pass it down to. Now, you probably know this very well, that women who were barren were considered cursed because they could not pass on the line of their family. In a very similar way, eunuchs were looked on with skepticism because they had foregone the opportunity to pass down their line. It's a strange thing in our modern culture that many people don't think much about having children. That was a priority to the people of this day. And when you decided voluntarily that you were going to to have an elective surgery that would eliminate your capability of having biological offspring, then in a way you were cursing yourself forever. It means your line is immediately and dramatically ended. 
And on a spiritual front, there were also dire consequences. Notice that this man was a God-fearing man. According to the text, he had traveled to Jerusalem. Why? For the express purpose of worshiping God. And I think Luke writes it this way, knowing that this man's desire was actually to worship God. So in some way, he had heard about the God of Israel. He had listened to and maybe even read about. We don't know when he got this book of Isaiah. He knew something about Israel's worship. So he travels there and he goes all the way to this land in order to worship God. And this is not a short trip. It is not a cheap trip. This is incredibly expensive. According to commentator Daryl Bach, this is a five-month journey in one direction. In other words, this eunuch was probably away from his post for a full year of his life in order to make this trip to go to Jerusalem and worship this God. For that reason, it's possible, maybe even likely, that this was his only chance that he would ever have to go to Jerusalem in order to worship God at the temple. But when he arrived, he would not have been welcomed. He would not have been allowed in. In Deuteronomy, it teaches that eunuchs were not permitted past the outer courts. So this man would have only been able to enter the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which you will recall from the Gospels has been turned into nothing more than a glorified marketplace. It is not a place of worship or prayer. So the eunuch left Jerusalem no closer to God. All he could do was take this scroll and read it on his ride home. And for reasons only known to God at this point, he has the scroll of Isaiah. Why is it that he packed this thing or purchased this thing? Because God was putting the pieces together for him. This scroll was big. These scrolls of Isaiah, they're about two feet tall and they range from about 30 to 39 feet long. And you would unravel one side and unravel the other and you would read a section at a time. So this man was driving his chariot and reading, probably moving at a leisurely pace, reading as much as he could the text of Isaiah as he left the city. As a side note, in the ancient world, people always read out loud. Silent reading was not a skill that was taught until much later, and it was actually very rare that anyone read silently. In fact, people who could read silently were thought to be like geniuses. So you guys, well done. <laughs> I don't know how often we can all say that, but I can read it in my own mind, so therefore, to the ancient people, I would have been considered very smart. In fact, one Roman historian wrote a book in which he, he said, that he would have to stop reading for the day early in the day because he would run out of his voice. It would just get too tired. I, I can't read anymore because my voice hurts. That's a very strange thing to say. So the Ethiopian man was reading the book and he was reading it out loud and the Spirit of God pointed this man out to Philip and nudged him to go speak to him. And all he asked the man is if he understood what he was reading. Do you understand what that is? And God had prepared the heart of this eunuch to be frustrated with his inability to understand God's word. And he invited him up. Look, I can't understand it. How am I supposed to understand this unless somebody can teach it to me? He, I'm just imagining he made his eyes, you know, like, unless somebody can teach it to me. You know, come up. Yep. Okay. All right. We got somebody. And so he keeps writing and notice that Philip didn't have any credentials. He didn't show him a seminary degree. He didn't explain to him how educated he was about the word. He simply told the man that he could help him understand. And if you know the word, you likewise have the sharpest tool at your disposal for cutting through the barriers of human rejection, because the Bible is sharper than any kind of argument that you could prepare. So the great commission commands us to teach what Jesus had taught. The Bible does not only mean that we teach the red letters, right? So if you have a Bible with red letters, it's just the words of Jesus. 
Jesus is not telling us in the Great Commission, that's the only part of Scripture you're allowed to share when you are sharing the gospel in evangelism or missions. No, it means share the good news about Jesus. For example, in Luke 24, remember what Jesus himself did. It says he opened the entire Old Testament to those disciples and shared with them all of himself from the Scriptures. The Bible of Jesus was the Old Testament, and he is declaring that he is in there on every page. So as a side note, I want to share with you that you are all invited to my house on Tuesday night Bible study, November 19th. And that night, we are going to spend a full two hours going through every book in the Old Testament where we are going to see how Jesus is on every single page. We are going to take that time. It's going to be an extended time, longer than most of our Bible studies. But I would encourage you to come because I want you to know how to do exactly what Philip does here. He starts where this man was in Isaiah, and he goes right from that place all the way to the cross. And I want you to be able to see Jesus in the Old Testament to do the same thing as well. In particular, we have many people around us in this neighborhood who believe the Old Testament is true. They believe in the Torah. They believe in even the prophets. But they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are an overlooked but significant portion of our community that need to hear the gospel. And you have an opportunity to use God's own word to share it to them. What was the eunuch reading exactly? He was reading Isaiah 53. In particular, he was reading these words. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Notice that this would have resonated with the eunuch because of the family line also being spoken about being eliminated from the earth when he died. This is something that he would have heard or thought about himself many times. When you die, there's no one left. Your family line is over. And here the text teaches the same thing would happen to the Messiah. But also note that this man probably didn't start reading just moments earlier. He had probably read all the way from the beginning of the book and had finally arrived at chapter 53. And as he started at chapter 1, he would have seen the constant barrage of promises that a Messiah was going to come. And now he sees what is supposed to happen to the Messiah when he does actually arrive. He was to be slaughtered and to be stripped, just like a lamb is stripped of its wool. And he was to be the kind of man who would not retaliate or seek justice for himself, and this Messiah would be humiliated. How kingly is that? This puzzled the eunuch, so he asked, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Translation, he could not comprehend how it is that the coming king would experience this kind of shame. It is very plain in the text of Isaiah, this is speaking about the coming Messiah. There is no doubt that that is what is going on in the text, but it did not compute, so the plain language of the text seemed to be confusing to him. He could not imagine a suffering servant Messiah until God sent a messenger to open up the word to him. But don't miss this. The eunuch had just come from Jerusalem, remember? He had just come from that place where he would go to the temple to worship, remember? What was going on in Jerusalem? That is the center of the church. That is where all of the apostles were still doing ministry. They were located there. Yet God does not save him when he is in the epicenter of Christian evangelism. God waits until he has traveled outside of the city, about 35 to 40 miles south, through the middle of the wilderness, into the desert, so that he might read Isaiah so that he might hear these words of truth, and so that God might use that until the exact right opportunity to save him. And God's timing is perfect. Now, you could look back at this and say, 
This makes no sense. God is not using his resources wisely. He could have used any number of the thousands of Christians that were still in Jerusalem to go and talk to this guy. But God often sends people far. And he sends people to places that you would not expect. And sometimes God takes an individual and shares the gospel with one other individual that they will never see again for the rest of your life. Those conversations are not meaningless. Just because there is no response when you share the gospel with a person on a plane does not mean that there is not a response in the future in their heart. God takes people out of their own context into conversations for reasons such as this. He could have gotten saved when there are millions of people around him, thousands of Christians, but he takes them into the wilderness, into the desert, into a place of disappointment and discouragement with his worship life and takes him to the word and then God worked in his heart so that he would be prepared to hear the gospel. And you just don't know who God is doing that too. You just don't know what people are thinking, what people are going through in their own lives. God is preparing people, and how often are we ignoring those opportunities that are surrounding us? Point number four, baptizing them. Verse 36 says, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Let's first get the glaring issue out of the way. For those of you who are good at counting, you will know that there is a a situation here where there is a verse number missing from your Bible. That is verse number 37 that is absent from most translations of the Scripture. And you might be wondering, why is it that that's not there? And the reason is very simple. All of the oldest documents, all of the oldest copies of Scripture that we have, regardless of location where those documents have been found, do not contain this passage. It is one of the least debatable sections of Scripture that this is not supposed to be there. So why is it in any copy of Scripture? The answer is very simple. At some point along the way, a scribe inserted a note. Now, we don't have like highlighting, uh, you know, in the ancient world. There was no way to determine whether this was something that was supposed to be in the text or was added. In fact, at this time, there are no commas, there are no periods, there is no sentence structure. They don't have parentheses to place around them. So whenever they inserted a note, it's difficult to know this is actually an editorialized note. This is a commentary, not actual scripture. So what is going on here? This is probably something that was written in such a way that it would be something people would say before they were baptized. Is it wrong that people would think about verse 37 and see what it says? Absolutely not. But is it scripture? Absolutely not. So moving forward, I want you to take away four things from these verses that we see uh, concerning the baptism. First of all, and we'll move them through them very quickly. Philip must have been confident that this man was truly saved after their conversation about the gospel. We know from earlier in, the, in chapter 8 that he baptized those who professed faith in Christ. So he must have recognized there was genuine conversion here in the heart of this man. Secondly, Philip must have included teaching about baptism in his gospel presentation, for how else would this man know that he was supposed to be baptized? At the first opportunity to come along, he said, hey, look over there, there's some water. Why shouldn't we stop now and get baptized? Third, notice that they actually got down into the water. That is very important because true baptism is by immersion. The eunuch was on a five-month journey through the desert. Don't you think he probably had a canteen with him? If they were going to do sprinkling or pouring, it was right there in his little water pouch that they could have used. But he goes and he doesn't just go to the bank and dip his hand in. It says that they go get down into the water. Why on earth would you do that? 
unless you were to do what the actual word means, baptizo, to dunk the person beneath the water. But instead, they get down into the water and he is baptized by immersion. Fourth, and most importantly, when the eunuch asks what would prevent him from being baptized, this is a powerful and incredible rhetorical question that we cannot go over too quickly. This is a loaded statement. In that old dead religion in Jerusalem, he was saying, there's a lot of things keeping me from worshiping God. I can't go closer. I am barred both by the nature of my bloodline and by the nature of my body to getting into the worship of the Lord. But now, what's to prevent me from being numbered among those who are with Christ? What is to prevent me from going now and professing my faith in this way? I am free to worship the Lord as my king. I am free to stand in his presence. What can prevent me from declaring my salvation? And the answer is nothing. Let me get down there in that water and let me declare that Jesus died for my sin and that he was raised for my justification. He is asking this question in a powerful way. I'm a believer. I have nothing keeping me from God. Therefore, let me be baptized. If you are a Christian and have not yet been baptized by immersion, please talk to the elders here at the church, myself or Mike or Steve. We want you to know what it looks like to be baptized faithfully in a gospel teaching church so that you would be able to worship the Lord in accordance with what the Bible teaches about the practice and ordinance of baptism. Point number five, teaching them. Notice that Something interesting happens here immediately after the baptism. Verses 39 through 40 says, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found him at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. That's crazy. God just whisked this guy away. The old translations use the word that says, God translated him. I like that, that translation. What was that like? I have have literally no idea. Is this like teleportation? I don't know. It seems like from the text, that is what is taking place. But none of that phased Philip. He just keeps doing what evangelists do. He preached the gospel in every town until he gets back to Caesarea, which by the way, when we get to the later parts of the book of Acts, we will see that 20 years later, he's still in Caesarea. He was located there permanently. But what about the eunuch? How is this guy now going to learn the finer points of of theology, being that he doesn't have a teacher? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us, but from history we do know that the church continued to grow immensely in Ethiopia. And if the traditions are accurate, which I'm not sure that they are, but if they are accurate, both the apostle Matthew and the apostle Andrew traveled to that land and served there for the rest of their lives as missionaries. And Matthew is even said to have been martyred there for the sake of the gospel. So just like God saved this man in his own timing, he did not leave them high and dry without spiritual guidance in the future. He did send those to teach, not just this man, but all who would come to Christ through his ministry. I am confident of one thing. I am sure that when the eunuch got back on his chariot, He didn't stop reading Isaiah. He started reading again what he would have seen in that glorious book. And just as a preview, just as something to look forward to, now that we've finished the book of Genesis in the summers, starting uh, the end of May this coming year, we are going to be starting through the book of Isaiah, and we will go through as much as the Lord allows in that book. And I am really excited because this book is what many theologians have called the bridge between the Old and the New Covenant. And so as we go through that book together, we are going to see a lot of the things that this man would have seen as he read them. I don't have time to go through much of them, but I do want to share with you one small passage that it, this he would have reached in just about seven minutes of reading. 
if he was reading out loud at the speed that I normally read out loud, in seven minutes of getting back in that chariot and continuing to read, this is what he would have found in chapter 56, verses 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give my house and within my walls, a monument shall, and a name better than sons and daughters shall be given. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, God is saying, look, you've got no hope without me. You've got no future. You've got no descendants. You've got nothing. Your name will perish with you. But now in Christ, you are going to have a hope and a future. There is an inheritance in Jesus that is unfailed, unfading and undefiled. And although he had no treasure to himself, he was the man who owned the treasure of an entire kingdom. This man, from a worldly perspective, had everything at his disposal, yet he looked at that and said, I've got nothing. I've got nothing until the treasure of the universe, Jesus Christ himself. Not only did he find the treasure, the treasure found him. And on that day, his entire world was set upright, and he was given an inheritance, Jesus himself. So now he has life that will never end. The story of this man is the story of every truly saved person in the room. The story of this eunuch is the story of every Christian who will ever be saved, that God sent a messenger to proclaim the good news to us, and he redeemed us, and he gave us the gifts of righteousness and freedom. Just like we sang this morning, come praise and glorify our God who gives his grace in Christ, because in him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In him God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that Christ should be the head of all, his purpose to fulfill. Which brings us now to our final point. Behold, he is with us. I don't need to say much about this point because it should be obvious from every word of this text that Jesus was with Philip. He did not go on that trip alone. That as he entered into that chariot and stepped up to that plate and as he began to explain those words that Jesus was working with him and through him. He was always right there in every detail so that Philip could have the privilege to take part in the salvation of this man's soul. God graciously brought Philip into his mission. Missionaries are just people who are part of God's mission, who have been thrown into that great flow of God's river that is flowing towards eternity. And we who are not professional missionaries, who are not going to go overseas for the rest of our lives, we also can be part of that mission if we will simply obey and go to those God has put in our path. The Great Commission does not end with an empty promise. When you share the gospel, Jesus is with you. He is always there. He is not going to, to leave you behind. He is with you to the end of the age. So don't shrink back. Let's not preach with, a, with doubt. Let's not fear man. Let's not look at the lack of Christians in the faithful churches on Long Island and think, man, we're fighting a losing battle here. Let's not have this defeat in our heart. No, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us. We are ambassadors for Jesus, God making his appeal through us. So what do we do? Let's boldly carry that banner high, trusting that as we lift high the cross, he will draw all his people unto him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of Philip. We thank you that he went after this man, this guy who had left Jerusalem and gone out into the wilderness. But much more, we thank you for your son who left the kingdom of glorious beauty in heaven 
And he departed that place to go into something much worse than a desert. He came to a place filled with sin to find us. Just as this same author, Luke, writes in Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And Lord, we who are in the room cannot be more grateful that you would come, send your son to find us, to carry us back. Lord, I pray that we would be actively taking part in that ministry as you draw many unto yourself. Build your kingdom here, we pray. We ask that you would cause many faithful Christians to be born again in our ministries, in our conversations, that you would draw many to yourself. And Lord, I pray that this island would be rapidly populating with faithful, Bible-teaching, gospel-centered churches, that this would be a place that is known for being committed to the good news of Jesus Christ, that even the world would look at the transformation and say, what happened here? This place has been turned upside down. God, you can do that, and we pray that you would do that. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.